You may be seated. Open your Bibles to John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 19 through 23 this morning, finishing up something we started two weeks ago entitled, Why Are You So Narrow? John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Two weeks ago, I shared with you some important statistics regarding the state of a church here in America. This morning, I'll share with you a few more. I've drawn these from some recent books that I've been reading with regard to church planting, since it is our stated desire to plant four new Bible teaching churches in the next 10 years. So let me share with you some more statistics just with regard to the general state of the church here in America. One uh, expert wrote in 1988, he was estimating at that time that between 80 and 85% of all churches in America are either plateaued or declining in attendance. 80 to 85% were either flat or declining in terms of attendance. And this, by the way, is not just evangelical churches. This is churches across the board, Christian churches. Furthermore, um, another estimate was that roughly 100,000 or 29%, almost a third of the 350,000 churches that are existing in America right now will close their doors within the next few years. And that appears to be sort of an ongoing phenomenon, churches shuttering the doors and, and going out of business, so to speak. 100,000 over the period of just a few years. The reason is due in part because of the large portion of the population of America that are what are called unchurched. Recent estimates now are that close to 60% of the population of America no longer attends church. 60%. And beyond that, we now have the phenomena of second and even third generation Americans who have never been inside a church. Now, that's a national statistic. That includes areas like the Bible Belt, where it's still culturally acceptable to go to church. Whether you believe or not, people still tend to go. I remember when we first moved here to California almost 15 years ago, one of the phenomena we moved here from Dallas, and one of the phenomena we noticed was that on Sunday morning, the incredible uh, number of people that were out doing many things, um, but it was obvious they were not on their way to church. So I suspect in an area like Southern California, it's even larger than 60% of the population does not attend a church. Now, I'm not just talking about evangelical churches, Bible-teaching churches. I'm talking about the whole broad scope of Christendom, 60%. Now, these, uh, these doom and gloom kinds of statistics would be very, very depressing were it not for the promise that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 16 and in verse 18, right? Where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus has committed himself to building the church. And so the church is not going to go out of business. There may be a hundred thousand churches whose doors are shuttered over the next couple of years, but the church itself will not go out of business. It will not become, uh, cease to exist. It will, it will not be destroyed. Throughout the last 2,000 years, the church has systematically been persecuted. There are many who have tried to destroy it, and they've been unsuccessful in doing so. So persecution, neither ancient nor modern, has been able to destroy the church. Neither will apathy. Apathy will not destroy the church either. And the reason is, is because the church is not a human institution. It is God's ordained means of reaching the nations and discipling them, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm no fan of Peter Wagner, that's for sure. But I do agree with something that he said. 
And I quote, The single most effective evangelistic methodology under heaven is planting new churches. Planting new churches. It is, he says, the single most effective evangelistic methodology there is. It is to go forth and plant new Bible teaching churches that will reach out to communities, beloved, that we will never be able to reach out to. In places that we will never be able to go. That is how we will do our part of continuing the great commission of making disciples of the nations. Now, this phenomena of the decline of the church has been responded to in a number of different ways. There are some within the broad tent of evangelicalism who have responded to this phenomena by taking it upon themselves to go out and conduct surveys, opinion polls. And they will go to people that don't attend church and they will ask them to tell them why you don't come. Tell us the reasons that you don't come. And then they will take that data and they will correlate it together and then they will structure a church around those answers. Providing to those people that which they think they want in order to get them to come. Now, the problem with that methodology is is, uh, on multiple fronts. One of the problems is just a very simple one, and that is that whatever you use to attract people is what you have to use to retain them. So if the means by which you attract people does not include the gospel, then you will never be able to retain them when you give them the gospel. It would be kind of like going to the doctor and telling him what your problem is, prescribing to him what treatment you need to have, asking or telling him what tests need to be run, what medicines need to be prescribed, what surgery needs to be conducted. We would never handle ourselves in that way. You see, beloved, we know what people need. We don't need to go to an unbeliever and and conduct a survey and ask them what it is they think they need in a church. We already know what unbelievers need. What unbelievers need is a massive dose of biblical truth delivered in the power of the Holy Spirit directly to their sin-sickened hearts. That's what they need. And that, my friends, is not culturally popular. That is an extremely narrow message, a message guaranteed to cause confrontation. When the Apostle Paul planted churches in the first century, he went to a Greek city called Corinth. Corinth was a thriving example of first century commerce and philosophy. It was just exactly the place to be if you were a person of the world. And so when the Apostle Paul arrived there, he confronted them not with a, with a consumer mentality of trying to figure out what it was they want and then providing it to them. He confronted them there with a very narrow message. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, don't turn there, just listen. Verses 1 through 5, Paul describes his evangelistic strategy for Corinth. He says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The Apostle Paul brought to that Greek city the very narrow message of Jesus Christ crucified. 
And there, by the grace of God, he built a church. The pressure to compromise was strong. It was strong for him. He says, fear and trembling, I came there. The pressure to compromise was strong. The pressure to compromise for us is strong as well. But we must be reminded that it is a narrow way. And so as we finish this section before us this morning, verses 19 through 23, I'm giving you three reasons why we must be spiritually narrow so that we do not waver in the face of religious multiculturalism. Let me read the text. When therefore it was evening, on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst. And he said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus, therefore, said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, two weeks ago, we introduced this first reason and elaborating it on it a little more last week. The first reason for our narrowness of I called appearance in verses 19 and 20. That is, Jesus appeared alive in bodily resurrected, in a bodily resurrected body to his disciples. His resurrection from the dead, as we labored to show you, is the validation of all his claims. It is the empty tomb that validates Christianity. And so it is a cornerstone which we must build our message upon. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. That is a very narrow message. An exceedingly narrow message. A message that would be arrogant. A message that would be foolish. A message that would be full of self-deception. Were it not for an empty tomb, were it not for His resurrection from the dead and His appearance to His disciples, by which through many proofs, many convincing evidences, He showed Himself alive to them. Luke says over a period of 40 days. So it is the appearance of Jesus Christ in resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 verse 4, He was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It is His appearance that is a reason why we must be narrow. Beyond that, I said it was appointment. The second reason was appointment, and that is in verse 21. Jesus appointed His apostles, His messengers, to carry on the mission that the Father had given to Him. The Father had given to Jesus a mission, that is to, to bring a message to the world, a message of reconciliation, a message of redemption, that there was life in no one else but He Himself. And Jesus now is returning back to the right hand of the Father. And He is, he is appointing now ten men to carry on that very mission. It is these disciples here in the room, look again, verse 21. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He has appointed them to carry on the task. Turn with me back to John 14, verse 26. Because this is how we enter into the picture, beloved. We do not have this direct appointment. Jesus has not appeared to any of you, nor to me to directly appoint me to the task of carrying on the work that He has begun. So where is our authority? By what basis do we go out and, and preach this narrow message? What is our authority? When challenged and people say, what gives you the right to say these things? The answer is here. That we have a derived authority. It comes from Christ to them and from them to us. Verse 26, John 14, the Helper, 
the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Verse chapter 17, verse 20. Jesus' high priestly prayer, he says, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. The Apostle Paul writes there and he says, For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. The message of the, of the, of the apostles under this Divine appointment from Jesus Christ is the message of the Scriptures that comes to us. It is their word to us when it allows us to fall in with them in the work that they do. It is their authority through their word coming to us. We have a derived authority. What is the basis by which we can say to someone that if you repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved? And conversely can say that if you do not repent and do not embrace Jesus Christ by faith, that you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. What gives you the right to say such things? It is the very Word of God. It is the very Word of God. Back to John 20. And the third reason. The third reason I'm calling anointing. Verses 22 and 23, Jesus anointed his apostles. He appointed them in verse 21. He he commissioned them. But here in verses 22 and 23, it goes beyond a simple commissioning. It is an anointing with power that he gives to them that enables them to do what they do. Verse 22. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Spirit. This verse is notoriously difficult to interpret. This verse has created no end of possibilities as to what exactly was going on here. We don't get a whole lot of help grammatically from this because the verb emphusao appears only here in the New Testament. So there's no other place to go and and find a cross-reference to help us out. We get, by the way, the English word emphasis from this Greek verb. The word means to breathe on. That's what the verb means. It means to breathe on. And, And the English word emphasis is the idea of a breath on a syllable. You emphasize it. So it has something to do with breathing on. And so, again, looking at verse 22, you have a nice English translation. He breathed on them. That's what it means. That's what it says. So, question. Why? Why did Jesus breathe on the disciples? Why? And what is the significance of this action? Why did he breathe on them at this point? And what is the significance of what he has done? As I say, there's a number of different answers that have been given by Bible teachers through the years. Let me see if I can unpack a few of them with you before I give you what I believe it means. Some teach that on the resurrection day, this is, of course, happening the evening of Easter, that the disciples are here indwelt by the Holy Spirit and it is the beginning of the new covenant. That they are, by this action, breathe on them, receive the Holy Spirit, that they have now become indwelt with the Holy Spirit and the new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31 has kicked in. The only problem with that is it runs contrary to what is said for us over back in John chapter 7. So go there and... Be reminded. I'm going to have to ask you to think with me this morning through this. And if if you do, I promise you at the end it'll be worth your time. Okay? But this is not the kind of sermon you can zone out on. You're going to have to walk with me. Okay? 
When we turn to cross-references, you're going to have to turn with me. All right, otherwise you will zone out. All right, John 7, verses 37 through 39. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. Future tense. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Go to chapter 16 and verse 7. John 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. It cannot be here in the upper room when He breathed on them that they have now become indwelt with the Holy Spirit because He clearly says earlier that the Spirit will not come until He has ascended back to the right hand of the Father and He will send the Spirit. Beloved, the Spirit does not come for 50 more days until Pentecost. So it cannot be here that this breathing on them is the indwell or they're receiving the spirit they are being indwelled by the spirit so that's not possible secondly some believe it is a temporary filling of the apostles here something like would you would witness in the old testament where the spirit would come on a, a person for a period of time for a task and then leave them again and it was provided, these people would say, for their spiritual needs in the in-between time between the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. So during this 50-day period of time, Jesus temporarily sends the Spirit and fills them with it so that they might have their spiritual needs met. Now, I think the problem with this view is twofold. Number one, Jesus is still with them during this period of time, meeting their needs. He says that he will go, but he will not leave them as orphans, right? He says that earlier in John, that he will send the Spirit to take care of them. So as long as he is with them, they are not orphans. Therefore, he does not need to send the Spirit to minister to them. Beyond that, during this 50-day period of time, there, there is no great, evangelistic activity or outpouring on the part of the apostles here. Peter goes fishing and needs to be recommissioned. They really show little or nothing that, that would signify that they have somehow received the Spirit of God, even like under the Old Testament. When the Spirit came on someone in the Old Testament, they became mighty for God. During this period of time, these Men are anything but mighty for God. Third, some believe and teach that it was at this point, verse 22, in which they became born again. That it was here that the disciples were born again. That they, that they finally had their names you know, secured in heaven. And there is a there is a element of evangelicalism, those particularly of a charismatic persuasion, who who find a great attraction in this kind of understanding, because it supports their view that there is a two stage giving of the Spirit. Here in John two twenty two, they receive the Spirit in salvation, and then later over in Acts chapter one, when, or chapter two rather, when the Spirit comes there at Pentecost. They speak in tongues, and that's the second blessing of the Spirit. So it, it fits their theology. The only problem is it doesn't fit the Bible's theology. And the reason I say that is because, beloved, they are already saved at this point. John chapter 20, verse 22. They are already saved. What happens at Pentecost, and we'll circle back to this here in a little bit, what happens is Pentecost is that the Spirit comes in power upon them to give them great power for ministry. But they are already saved. They're already spoken of as saved. For example, go back with me to Luke's Gospel, 
chapter 10 and verse 20. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Nevertheless, they're rejoicing that they've had all these this uh, ability to do miracles that Jesus has given to them. It says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. They've already been written in heaven. Back to John. Go to John 15, verse 3. Jesus says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. They are already clean. That is, a, that is a terminology that is used only of one who is redeemed. They are spiritually clean. Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. Don't bother to turn there. But it is there that they give the great confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So they have, they have embraced Christ as Messiah and as deity. John 17, verse 14. (coughs) Jesus is praying to the Father here, and He says, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So they're already spoken of as not of the world. They're spoken of as having their names been written in heaven. They're spoken of as having been spiritually clean. They, they, by their own mouths, have confessed Christ as Messiah and Son of God. They are saved. They are saved here in John 20, verse 22. They're as saved as you or I. So that doesn't work. And that brings me to the fourth possible interpretation of this verse, and this is the one that I believe best accounts for the evidence. I am uh, indebted for this to uh, to Dr. Larry Pettigrew, who was a theology professor I had over at the seminary years ago. And he's written a book on that. It is it appears in the bottom of your handout if you want to check it out and read it on your own. He calls it apostolic anointing. What's going on here is apostolic anointing. So now. Walk with me on this. Follow me along here now. After appointing the ten disciples to the work of apostleship in verse 21, Jesus then grants to them a, a special anointing of the Holy Spirit to enable them to carry out that task to which He has appointed them. He has appointed them with the authority as apostles, but with the authority needs to go enablement. And so what is going on here is an enabling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is similar to what is known as the theocratic anointing that appears in the Old Testament. I'll go there with you in a minute and kind of walk you through that. So this is an enablement that he is giving them. He is setting them apart as special people. They've been commissioned, they've been anointed with, or appointed rather with an authority to take a message to the world. But they need an ability to do it. And so that's what they're receiving here. They are receiving the anointing of the Holy Spirit to enable them to become the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's worth a turn. Go there with me. Ephesians 2. And verse 20, and be reminded. Pick it up in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles are the foundation of the church. And it is here that they receive both their appointment to that foundational ministry and their anointing in order to be able to carry it out. 
Now, this is not the same as the gift of power that was received on Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came there at Pentecost, He gave to them the ability to perform signs and wonders, miracles. The apostles received at Pentecost the ability to do miracles. We know that to be sure as you trace through the book of Acts, but probably the most clear statement you could find is over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Go ahead and turn there. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 12. Where the apostle Paul there defending his ministry against false apostles, pretenders, says to them, verse, or chapter 12, verse 12, 2 Corinthians, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. The ability to do signs, wonders, and miracles is, is the certification that one was an apostle. Jesus himself said in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 8, He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses, right? In Judea, Samaria, uh, and uh, to the remotest part of the earth. So what came to them at Pentecost was an enablement from the Spirit to do miracles, foundational miracles, demonstrating their apostolic authority. But what is given to them here in chapter 20 and in verse 22 is an enablement ministry to enable them to lay the foundation of the church. Things like leadership. Things like administration. These kinds of abilities were given to the apostles here. Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, calls himself a wise master builder. A wise master builder. The Apostle Paul had the ability to organize and administrate and lay down the foundation of the church. How? A gift from the Spirit of God. Now, I said this is, I believe, similar to what's called the the theocratic anointing of the Old Testament. So let me refresh your memory on what that means. The theocratic anointing was a special work of the Holy Spirit that came upon men to enable them to administrate God's work in the world, particularly among Israel. It was was the ability to do leadership-type things. It came first to Moses, and go ahead and just kind of pencil these down because I'm not going to take the time to turn to them all. You can look them up yourselves. It came to Moses. We see that in Numbers 11.17. And then Moses passed it on to Joshua. I didn't pass it on, but it was passed on to Joshua. Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. It passed through into the period of the judges. Each judge was anointed by the Spirit of God to continue this this organizational ministry, this ability to judge the nation of Israel, to carry out leadership-type activities, the theocratic anointing. You can see a clear example with Samson in Judges chapter 13, verse 25. It came upon Saul. 1 Samuel 10, 6. We will turn for that one. Go ahead, 1 Samuel. Chapter 10, verse 6. There Samuel says to him, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. What kind of other man was Saul changed into? He was changed into a man who could become the king of Israel. Prior to that, he was a doofus who couldn't even find his donkeys. Right? So there's something powerful happened there. It came to David, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. 
David received this theocratic anointing as well, this ability to lead the nation. David was what? He was a shepherd boy. How is he going to become the king of a nation? How is he going to administer the affairs of a government? He's just a dumb shepherd boy. He receives the theocratic anointing. I won't go there, but you can ponder this one. Jesus himself receives it. In Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2, it's speaking prophetically. The Spirit coming upon the Messiah in his millennial kingdom. So this theocratic anointing, this idea that it's a ministry of the Spirit that comes upon a person to enable them to carry out the administrative task that God wants carried out. I mean, think with me about these disciples, these now apostles. What do we know about them? They were fishermen. They were uneducated fishermen. That's, the, that's the, the word that the authorities say when they see them later. Uneducated fishermen. That's all they were. Yet now they are going to be the foundation ministry of God's great outworking called the church. Something has to change. What changed is this. John 20, verse 22 They received the anointing of the Spirit, an apostolic anointing. Now, some would object to this view. They would say, well, Thomas wasn't present, and he's clearly an apostle. But if, you know, we'll do this next week, Thomas gets his own commissioning service a week later. Others say, well, Peter had to be recommissioned because remember him, he went fishing. We'll look at that in a few more weeks. So Peter, he had to be recommissioned. And furthermore, the apostles, I mean, if this is, a, if this is an apostolic anointing creating the, 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 the office of apostle, the gift of apostleship, then how come they don't demonstrate it during Pentecost during, or until Pentecost during this 50-day period? Wouldn't they be immediately out there, you know, laying the foundation of the church? Well, no, because they were told to, that the Spirit wouldn't come until Jesus ascended back to the Father. And until He ascends back to the Father and sends the Spirit to indwell the church, and the church is not born. Beyond that, we can even see Old Testament precedent for a delay in the theocratic anointing before the actual outworking in the life of an individual. Think with me about Samuel again. Samuel was anointed, or not Samuel, Saul. Saul was anointed by Samuel, Right? But did he immediately become the leader of the nation? No. When Samuel was ready to introduce him to the people, Saul was found what? Hiding in the baggage, it says. Saul was hiding away, 1 Samuel 10, 22. So there was a time period between he received the anointing until he actually began to operate under it. Now, if you don't like that, then think about David. David was anointed, according to 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, in the year 1025 B.C. He doesn't take over leadership of the kingdom until 2 Samuel 2, 4, 15 years later. So there's a 15-year wait between him receiving the anointing and actually working with the gift. So the time delay of 50 days here I don't think is fatal. All right, so this is an apostolic anointing. This creates apostles. Verse 21 gives them their authority. Verse 22 creates them. The office of apostle. So now, as official apostles, what were their duties? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. Look at verse 23, John 20. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. It's very simple what their duties are. Their duties are to spread the gospel and to build the church. And they're to do it on the basis of how a person reacts to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. It's as simple as that. Look again at the verse here. If you forgive the sins, they've been forgiven. If you retain them, they've been retained. Now, these verbs here are in the passive voice. 
So what does that mean? Well, what it means is it it implies that it is God is the one who is doing the forgiving or retaining, not the apostles themselves. In fact, over in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, it says that forgiveness of sin in an absolute sense is a prerogative of God's alone. So it's not that these men independently have the authority to forgive sin or to retain sin. That's not the point. The point of the matter is, is as, as they carry on their apostolic responsibilities, that they will be preaching the message of Christ and based on the response that people have to that message, their sins are either forgiven or retained. And they will declare it to be so. Let me illustrate that for you over Acts chapter 2. Go to Acts 2 and verse 37. Peter's preaching away here, verse 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. What Peter is saying to them is that you need to repent, that is, you need to, to turn away from the from the the uh, judgment that the leaders placed upon Jesus, the leaders of the nation and the nation itself judged Jesus to be a sinner and worthy of death on a cross. You need to repent. You need to turn away from that verdict and you need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ publicly by identification and baptism. If you do that, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that what it says? All right, now look at chapter 4. Verse 11 and 12. Peter's still preaching. He says, he that is Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. If you believe that reality, then you are, your sins are forgiven. If you refuse that reality, your sins are retained. Maybe the clearest example is over in Acts chapter 10. So go ahead and look there. Acts 10, verse 43. Peter's talking to Cornelius, a Gentile. He says, Of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So it is the proclamation of the gospel by which sins are released or forgiven. That is the foundational apostolic ministry that they have been called to it is the gospel that brings relief it is the gospel that brings hardening and depending on how someone responds to it the sins are either forgiven or retained okay so what what do we do with all this how does this apply to us let me see if i can help you with that First, because of the narrowness of the Scriptures, the written word of these anointed and appointed apostles, we must be narrow too. We've got to be just as narrow as they were. We have to insist upon the things that they insisted upon. And they insisted upon salvation in no one else. Now that's an unpopular message, isn't it? Beyond being unpopular, beloved, that is a message that is both harsh and divisive, were it not so true. If that message were not absolutely true, it would be hate speech. But the reality of the fact is that it is true. It's the only truth by which a man can be redeemed. And so to tell someone this is is not to hate them. It's not to to try to ruin their life. It's not to make them mad. It is to give them the means by which they can be eternally made right with God. That's an act of love, not hate. So we're called to deliver a narrow message. That's first. But second, and sort of alongside this, is we need to be careful that in the narrowness of the message, we don't try to out-narrow God. 
That we don't try to out-narrow God. We need to, where God is narrow, we must be narrow. But where God is wide, we must be wide too. What do I mean by that? Well, God is wide in compassion, isn't He? God is wide in graciousness. God is wide in mercy. God is wide in love. God reaches out His hands all day long and says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We must be wide like that too. We must be willing to reach out to people with a wideness of love and mercy and call them to faith in Christ. There's two ways to deliver this narrow message. It can be delivered with a, with a stern spirit or it can be delivered with a heart of compassion. We need to deliver it the way Christ delivered it. Jesus kept His stern words for the religious phonies, for those who were cutting off or shutting off the kingdom of heaven from the people, but Jesus spoke with compassion and tenderness to sinners. You need to be careful we don't try to out-narrow God. Third, application. Beloved, without the Scriptures, we cannot give anyone any hope or assurance that they have been forgiven by God. The assurance of salvation is based upon the Word of God. The Word of these apostles, directly commissioned by Jesus, anointed by the Spirit, who recorded for us in a book what we need to know and the basis of our insurance that we can offer to someone. That if you do repent of your sin and do embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. You will be made right with your Creator. None of the world's religions, none of the cults and knockoffs, Christian knockoffs, can offer security and assurance. They all fall down on this basis. It is only us that can offer the assurance of being right with God. That is an amazing advantage, apologetical advantage, when you're talking to someone about eternal things. You want to get in a dialogue with somebody? Let, get them talking. Let them tell you what they believe. And then ask them the question, of how do they know? How are they sure about this? What happens when you die? Do you know? And how sure are you of what you think you know? See, beloved, we have assurance. Is that right? If you embrace the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, repenting of your sin, will you spend eternity with your Creator? Amen? Amen? Amen. I like that. No one else can offer that assurance. Nobody else. They'll have you working plenty hard. They'll always keep the carrot like it is, or the rabbit like it is for the race dogs, right? Just in front of their nose. They never get it. It is only through the message of the apostles we have assurance. And that leads me to my fourth application of this message. I want you to remember that the world killed Jesus Christ. And 11 of these 12 apostles were also killed. John himself lived to an old age and died of natural causes, although not having, or first having been dipped in a pot of boiling oil. They all suffered. 11 out of 12 died. It should not surprise us that there is hostility that comes back for such a narrow message. Jesus said, Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're bringing a message of love and hope and eternal reconciliation and you receive back hostility, animosity, death threats, and persecution. It would be easy to quit. It would be easy to grow discouraged. It would be easy to say, what's the point? It would be easy to say, let them all go. It's what they deserve anyway. 
were it not for the grace of God in your own heart, knowing that you deserve it too. We have a narrow, narrow message. But we have the truth. Jesus said the truth will set you free. Maybe something that we've been talking about here this morning has resonated with you. Maybe some of the thoughts that we've been sharing have gelled in your mind, your heart. You know that that if you were to die tonight, you're not sure what will happen. You don't have assurance. You could not say amen. After the service here, we finish this last song. There'll be some folks standing over here by this lighted cross. They would love to talk to you about the state of your soul. To open the Word of God, the very Word of the Apostles, anointed by Jesus Christ, commissioned by Him to bring the message, to show you how you might have life everlasting. Maybe you have come to the conclusion you need to be baptized. You need to make public your commitment to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been a secret disciple up until now, but now is the time, beloved, to make it public. You need to do that in the waters of baptism. You come and you talk to those people. Maybe you've come to the conclusion that you need to unite with this church in a public way through membership. But you don't want to be in the shadows anymore. You don't want to be sort of on the side. You want to get involved. Put me in the game, coach. Well, get your helmet on. Come on over and talk about that too, huh? Let me pray. Our Father, the... uh, material that we covered this morning was more difficult, more theological, our Father, required a greater understanding of your word and just the the flow of it all. And so we pray your spirit would make plain that which was taught. Our Father, that your spirit would uh, clarify misunderstandings. But Father, most of all, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts that would reinforce us who know you as our Savior with the narrowness of the message of salvation in Christ and that he would work in the hearts of those who have yet to come to Christ, prompting them to do so even today. Let us go forth from this place, our Father, where we have gathered to worship with a renewed sense of commitment and purpose to the great work you are doing not only here in Upland but throughout this whole planet that your name would be glorified. Amen.